The Judicial Murder of Mary E. Surratt by David Miller DeWitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Preliminary. Chapter 1. The Reign of Terror. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln burst upon the city of Washington like a black thunderbolt out of a cloudless sky. On Monday, the 3rd of April, 1865, Richmond was taken. On the succeeding Sunday, the 9th, General Lee, with the main army of the South, surrendered. The rebellion of nearly one-half the nation lay in its death throes. The desperate struggle for the unity of the Republic was ending in a perfect triumph, and the loyal people gave full rein to their joy. Every night the streets of the city were illuminated. The chief officers of the government, one after another, were serenaded. On the evening of Tuesday, the 11th, the President addressed his congratulations to an enthusiastic multitude from a window of the White House. On the night of Thursday, the 13th, Edwin M. Stanton, the Secretary of War, and Ulysses S. Grant, the victorious General of the Army of the North, were tumultuously greeted with banners and music and cannon at the residency of the Secretary. The next day, Friday, the 14th, was the fourth anniversary of the surrender of Fort Sumter to the South, and that national humiliation was to be avenged by the restoration of the flag of the United States to its proper place above the fort by the hand of the same gallant officer who had been compelled to pull it down. In the evening a torchlight procession perambulated the streets of the Federal Capitol. Enthusiastic throngs filled the theaters, where the presence of great officials had been advertised by huge placards, and whose walls were everywhere festooned with the American flag. After four years of agonizing but unabating strain, all patriots felt justified in yielding to the full enjoyment of the glorious relaxation. Suddenly, at its very zenith, the snap of a pistol dislimbs and scatters the great jubilee, as though it were indeed the insubstantial fabric of a vision, at half-past ten that night, from the box of the theatre where the President is seated, a shot is heard. A wild figure, hatless and clutching a gleaming knife, emerges through the smoke. It leaps from the box to the stage, falls upon one knee, recovers itself, utters one shout, and waves aloft its bloody weapon. Then turns, limps across in front of the audience, and disappears like a phantom behind the scenes. Simultaneously there breaks upon the startled air the shriek of a woman, followed close by confused cries of water, water, and the president is shot. For the first few moments both audience and actors are paralyzed. One man alone jumps from the auditorium to the stage and pursues the flying apparition, but as soon as the hopeless condition of the president and the escape of the assassin begin to transpire, angry murmurs of, "'Burn the theater!' are heard in the house, and soon swell into a roar in the street where a huge crowd is already assembled. The intermingling throng surges into the building from every quarter and mounts guard at every exit. Not one of the company of actors is allowed to go out. The people seem to pause for a moment, as if awaiting from heaven a retribution as sudden and awful as the crime. All their joy is turned to grief in the twinkling of an eye. The rebellion they had too easily believed to be dead could still strike, it seemed, a fatal blow against the very life of the Republic. A panic seizes the multitude in and around the theatre, and from the theatre spreads, like the night, over the whole city. 
and when the frightened citizens hear, as they immediately do, the story of the bloody massacre in the house of the Secretary of State, occurring at the same hour with the murder of the President, the panic swells into a reign of terror. The wildest stories find the quickest and most eager credence. Every member of the Cabinet and the General of the Army have been or are about to be killed. The government itself is at a standstill and the lately discomfited rebels are soon to be in possession of the capital. Patriotic people, delivering themselves over to a fear of they know not what, cry hoarsely for vengeance on they know not whom. The citizen, upon whose past loyalty the slightest suspicion can be cast, cowers for safety close to his hearthstone. The terror-stricken multitude want but a leader cool and unscrupulous enough to plunge into a promiscuous slaughter, such as stained the newborn revolution in France. A leader, indeed, they soon find, but he is not a Danton. He is a leader only in the sense that he has caught the same madness of terror and suspicion which has seized the people, and that he holds high place, and that he has the power and is in fit humor to pander to the panic. Edwin M. Stanton was forced by the tremendous crisis up to the very top of affairs. Vice President Johnson, in the harrowing novelty of his position, was for the time being awed into passive docility. The Secretary of State was doubly disabled if not killed. The General of the Army was absent. The Secretary of War, without hesitation, grasped the helm thus thrust into his hand. But alas, he immediately lost his head. His exasperation at the irony of fate, which could so ruthlessly and in a moment wither the triumph of a great cause by so unexpected and overwhelming a calamity, was so profound and intense, his desire for immediate and commensurate vengeance was so uncontrollable and unreasoning as to distort his perception, unsettle his judgment, and thus cause him to form an estimate of the nature and extent of the impending danger as false and exaggerated as that of the most panic-stricken wretch in the streets. Personally, besides, he was unfitted in many respects for such an emergency. Though an able, and it may be a great war minister, he exerted no control over his temper, he habitually identified a conciliatory and charitable disposition with active disloyalty, and being unpopular with the people of Washington by reason of the gruffness of his ways and the inconsistencies of his past political career, he had reached the unalterable conviction that the capital was a nest of sympathizers with the South, and that he was surrounded by enemies of himself and his country. When, therefore, upon the crushing news that the President was slain, followed hard the announcement that another assassin had made a slaughterhouse of the residence of the minister's own colleague, self-possession, the one supreme quality which was indispensable to a leader at such an awful juncture, forsook him and fled. Before the breath was out of the body of the President, the Secretary had rushed to the conclusion, unsupported as yet by a shadow of testimony, that the acts of Booth and of the assailant of Seward, at the moment supposed to be John H. Surratt, were the outcome of a widespread, numerous, and powerful conspiracy to kill not only the President and the Secretary of State, but all the other heads of the departments, the Vice President, and the General of the Army as well and thus bring the government to an end, and that the primary moving power of the conspiracy was the defunct rebellion as represented by its titular president and his cabinet and its agents in Canada. 
this belief embraced with so much precipitation immediately became more than a belief it became a fixed idea in his mind he saw heard felt and cherished everything that favored it he would see nothing would hear nothing and hated everything that in the slightest degree militated against it upon this theory he began and upon this theory he prosecuted to the end every effort for the discovery arrest trial and punishment of the murderers he was seconded by a lieutenant well fitted for such a purpose general lafayette c baker chief of the detective force in one of the two minority reports presented at the house of representatives by the judiciary committee on the impeachment investigation of eighteen sixty seven this man and his methods are thus delineated the first witness examined was general lafayette c baker late chief of the detective police and although examined on oath time and again and on various occasions it is doubtful whether he has in any one thing told the truth even by accident in every important statement he is contradicted by witnesses of unquestioned credibility and there can be no doubt that to his many previous outrages entitling him to an unenviable immortality he has added that of willful and deliberate perjury and we are glad to know that no one member of the committee deems any statement made by him as worthy of the slightest credit what a blush of shame will tinge the cheek of the american student in future ages when he reads that this miserable wretch for years held as it were in the hollow of his hand the liberties of the american people that clothed with power by a reckless administration and with his hordes of unprincipled tools and spies permeating the land everywhere with uncounted thousands of the people's money placed in his hands for his vile purposes this creature not only had power to arrest without crime or writ and imprison without limit any citizen of the republic but that he actually did so arrest thousands all over the land and filled the prisons of the country with the victims of his malice or that of his masters in this man's hands secretary stanton placed all the resources of the war department in soldiers detectives material and money and commanded him to push ahead and apprehend all persons suspected of complicity in the assumed conspiracy and to conduct an investigation as to the origin and purpose of the crime upon the theory he had adopted and which as much as any other baker was perfectly willing to accept and then by his peculiar methods establish forthwith was ushered in the grand carnival of detectives far and wide they sped they had orders from baker to do two things one to arrest all the suspect two by promises rewards threats deceit force or any other effectual means to extort confessions and procure testimony to establish the conspiracy whose existence had been postulated at two o'clock in the morning of saturday the fifteenth they burst into the house of mrs surratt and displaying the bloody collar of the coat of the dying lincoln demanded the whereabouts of booth and surratt it being presently discovered that booth had escaped on horseback across the navy yard bridge with davy herald ten minutes in his rear a dash was made upon the livery stables of washington their proprietors taken into custody and then the whole of lower maryland was invaded the soldiers declaring martial law as they progressed ford's theatre was taken and held by an armed force and the proprietor and employees were all swept into prison including edward spangler a scene-shifter who had been a menial attendant of booth's 
the superstitious notion prevailed that the inanimate edifice whose walls had suffered such a desecration was in some vague sense an accomplice the secretary swore that no dramatic performance should ever take place there again and the suspicion was sedulously kept alive that the manager and the whole force of the company must have aided their favorite actor or the crime could not have been so easily perpetrated and the assassin escaped on the night of the fifteenth saturday a locked room in the kirkwood house where vice president johnson was stopping which had been engaged by george a atzerott on the morning of the fourteenth was broken open and in the bed were found a bowie knife and a revolver and on the wall a coat subsequently identified as herald's in which was found among other articles a bank book of booths the room had not been otherwise occupied atzerodt after taking possession of it having mysteriously disappeared on the morning of the seventeenth monday at baltimore michael o'laughlin was arrested as a friend of booth's and it was soon thought that he resembled extremely a certain suspicious stranger who it was remembered had been seen prowling about secretary stanton's residence on the night of the thirteenth when the serenade took place and there doing such an unusual act as inquiring for and looking at general grant on the same day at fort monroe samuel arnold was arrested whose letter signed sam had been found on saturday night among the effects of booth on the night of the seventeenth also the house of mrs surratt with all its contents was taken possession of by the soldiers and mrs surratt her daughter and all the other inmates were taken into custody while the ladies were making preparations for their departure to prison a man disguised as a laborer with a sleeve of his knit undershirt drawn over his head a pickaxe on his shoulder and covered with mud came to the door with the story that he was to dig a drain for mrs surratt in the morning and that lady asseverating that she had never seen the man before he was swept with the rest to headquarters and there to the astonishment of everybody turned out to be the desperate assailant of the sewards during these few days washington was like a city of the dead the streets were hung with crape the obsequies which started on its march across the continent the colossal funeral procession in which the whole people were mourners were being celebrated with the most solemn pomp no business was done except at military headquarters men hardly dared talk of the calamity of the nation everywhere soldiers and police were on the alert to seize any supposed or denounced sympathizer with the south mysterious and prophetic papers turned up at the white house and the war department women whispered terrible stories of what they knew about the great crime to be able to give evidence was to be envied as a hero and still the arch-devil of the plot could not be found the lower parts of maryland seethed like a boiling pot and the prisons of washington were choking with the suspect from that quarter lloyd the drunken landlord of the tavern at surrattsville ten miles from washington at which booth and harold had stopped at midnight on the fatal friday for carbines and whiskey after two days of stubborn denial was at first frightened into confession and dr mudd who had set booth's legs saturday morning thirty miles from washington was in close confinement all the intimate friends of the actor in washington in baltimore in philadelphia in new york and even in montreal were in the clutches of the government surratt himself 
the pursuit of whom, guided by Weichmann, his former college chum, his roommate, and the favorite guest of his mother, had been instant and thorough. It was ascertained, had left Canada on the 12th of April, and was back again on the 18th. But where was Booth? Where Harold? Where Atzerodt? On the 20th, the Secretary of War applied the proper stimulus by issuing a proclamation to the following effect. $50,000 reward will be paid by this department for the apprehension of the murderer of our late beloved President. $25,000 reward for the apprehension of John H. Surratt, one of Booth's accomplices. $25,000 reward for the apprehension of Harold, another of Booth's accomplices. Liberal rewards will be paid for any information that shall conduce to the arrest of either of the above-named criminals or their accomplices. All persons harboring or secreting the said persons, or either of them, or aiding or assisting in their concealment or escape, will be treated as accomplices in the murder of the President and the attempted assassination of the Secretary of State, and shall be subject to trial before a military commission and the punishment of death. What is noteworthy about this document is that Stanton had already made up his mind as to the guilt of the persons named as accomplices of Booth, that he needed only their arrest, being assured of their consequent conviction, and that he had already determined that their trial, and the trial of all persons connected with the great crime, however remotely, should be had before a military tribunal, and that the punishment to follow conviction should be death. At four o'clock in the morning of the very day this proclamation was issued, Atzerodt was apprehended at the house of his cousin in Montgomery County, Maryland, about twenty-two miles northward of Washington, by a detail of soldiers, to whom, by the way, notwithstanding the arrest preceded the proclamation, twenty-five thousand dollars reward was subsequently paid. With Atzerodt, his cousin, Richter, was taken also. O'Laughlin, Payne, Arnold, Atzerodt, and Richter, as they were severally arrested, were put into the custody of the Navy Department, and confined aboard the Monitor Sulgus, which on the morning of Saturday, when the President died, had been ordered to swing out into the middle of the river opposite the Navy Yard, prepared to receive at any hour, day or night, dead or alive, the arch-assassin. Each of these prisoners was loaded with double irons and kept under a strong guard. On the 23rd, Atzerodt, by order of the Secretary of War, was transferred to the monitor Montauk to separate him from his cousin, and Payne, in addition to his double irons, had a ball and chain fastened to each ankle by the direction of the same officer. On the next day Spangler, who had hitherto been confined in the old capital prison, was transferred to one of the monitors, and presumably subjected to the same treatment. On the same day the following order was issued. The Secretary of War requests that the prisoners on board ironclads belonging to this department for better security against conversation shall have a canvas bag put over the head of each and tied around the neck, with a hole for proper breathing and eating, but not seeing, and that pain be secured to prevent self-destruction, all of which was accordingly done. And still no booth. It seems as though the secretary were mad enough to imagine that he could wring from Providence the arrest of the principal assassin by heaping tortures on his supposed accomplices. At length, on the afternoon of the 26th, Wednesday, the second week after the assassination, Colonel Conger, 
arrived with the news of the death of Booth and the capture of Harold on the early morning of that day, bringing with him the diary and other articles found on the person of Booth, which were delivered to Secretary Stanton at his private residence. In the dead of the ensuing night, the body of Booth, sewed up in an old army blanket, arrived, attended by the dog-like Harold, and the living and the dead were immediately transferred to the Montauk. Harold was double-ironed, bald, and chained, and hooded. The body of Booth was identified, an autopsy held, the shattered bone of his neck taken out for preservation as a relic. It now hangs from the ceiling of the medical museum into which Ford's theater was converted, or did before the collapse. And then, with the utmost secrecy and with all the mystery which could be fabricated, under the direction of Colonel Baker, the corpse was hurriedly taken from the vessel into a small boat, rowed to the arsenal grounds, and buried in a grave dug in a large cellar-like apartment on the ground floor of the old penitentiary. The door was locked, the key removed, and delivered into the hands of Secretary Stanton. No effort was spared to conceal the time, place, and circumstances of the burial. False stories were set afloat by Baker in furtherance of such purpose. Stanton seemed to fear an escape or rescue of the dead man's body, and vowed that no rebel or no rebel sympathizer should have a chance to glory over the corpse, or a fragment of the corpse, of the murderer of Lincoln. End of chapter 1